Hello and welcome to More Than A Number, the podcast brought to you by ICAEW, looking behind the numbers to discover how they're really impacting our lives. I'm financial journalist Louise Cooper and today in this episode we're looking at how one and a half is going to change the face of business. One and a half degrees, that is supposed to be the safe limit to global warming. But we are already almost there. Humans so far have caused Earth to heat up by one degree. And in just a couple more decades, it could be one and a half degrees warmer than pre the Industrial Revolution. And scientists fear it won't stop there, as not enough is being done to limit carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions. A two degree increase and it could get ugly, a tipping point for a far worse outcome for the planet that we call home. Climate change is happening and the effects are many. Rising sea levels, floods, storm surges, droughts, heat waves. The world's five warmest years since records began have occurred in just the last eight years. And 2019 is set to be another warm year, either the second or third warmest year ever. So in this first episode of the ICAEW series, More Than a Number, we'll be asking, is business prepared for climate change? And I'm delighted to have the deputy leader of the Green Party here in the UK with me today, Amelia Womack. Welcome. Thank you. One degree already, one and a half degrees, supposedly the safe limit, two degrees, probably more likely. So one degree already. There are sceptics. The president of the United States, the world's largest economy, is one of them. How do we know it's one degree? I don't think we have time for scepticism. We know it's one degree because we've seen 50% of the Great Barrier Reef disappear as a result of not just ecological destruction, but a warming sea. We've seen our first glacier disappear. We've seen fires in the Arctic Circle. And when we were told 10 years ago that this was going to be the case, I know that I read those reports and believed it was impossible that we would see a planet that would reach that much destruction and people not taking serious action immediately. And I think while we're already seeing seeing these effects, um, whether it's hurricanes, more extreme weather events. It's really important from a business perspective as well that we start talking about climate breakdown, climate chaos, because this isn't just about a warming temperature. This is about the other effects of extreme weather and environmental effects in our communities. So one and a half degrees, the safe limit. What needs to be done to limit warming to one and a half, which is now deemed safe? I personally feel the best time to have clear policy on this was 30 years ago and the second best time is now. And that needs to be an immediate reaction from our political systems, from our businesses. I feel like there's a number of different players in this game. You've got politics who set policies which create a level playing field for business to operate from, meaning that it's not uncompetitive to be environmental. You've got businesses themselves who are working to manage their risk because this is a huge risk, the impacts of climate change on their business structures, on their resources that create their businesses themselves. You've got the people, you've got the press, you've got investors finance. And I think that if we analyse where we are at the moment, then I think the people are way ahead in terms of understanding the effects of climate change than those other groups. And it's actually uh, financial investment, business and politics that have the most influence. Well, I'm also joined from Copenhagen on the line by John Cornerup, Chief Advisor for Climate Change and Head of Sustainability at the largest shipping company in the world, well known for its shipping containers, Maersk. Welcome, John. Thank you very much. Now, Maersk has announced recently it plans to cut 
its net carbon emissions to zero by 2050. And we'll come on to that in a minute. But first, you know, we've heard already the earth is one degree warmer thanks to human action. Have you seen and what sort of impacts have you seen to your business from that? Well, the first thing that uh, springs to mind is obviously hurricanes and uh, rising sea level. And and we have these 700 plus ships sailing around the world. There must be a big problem. But actually, the big problem for us, for the physical impact of climate change is is not that. We uh, use artificial intelligence and data live to avoid bad weather. And so this is actually the part that people think first about, but probably the one that we can easiest manage. But we also have 70 uh, container terminals that we run ourselves. There we, of course, need to be a little bit more prudent in terms of how we construct or how we uh, build these structures. But actually, the biggest question for us is not our own assets. It's the impact that climate change, it can be drought, it can be hurricanes, it can be flooding, is having and, and, and increasingly it will be having on the global supply chains because it it doesn't matter to us if our terminal re- runs, but if the hinterland infrastructure has broken down from a hurricane, there will be no cargo for us to transport. And this is a very complex situation that we are really trying to understand, not the least together with our big customers, because it's a risk we share with them. How soon, though, do you need to make that change to your ships? What's the life cycle of a ship? You know, if you're doing going to, if that's what you're going to achieve by 2050, we're only. 30 years away. Yes, and it's it's much more urgent than that. I mean, uh, many people say 2050 is a long time ahead, but it's not if you're in shipping because ships live between 20 and 25 years. And, and therefore, we need the first commercially viable net zero ships in our fleet by 2030, and that's 11 years away. So part of our strategy here to announce the zero is also a call to action. By shipbuilders. Well, for shipbuilders, fuel providers... Technology providers, for example, if it's electrolysis, I mean, the cost of producing ammonia, 60% of that cost is still coming from the equipment, the capex, the investments into the, to the electrolysis. And, and therefore, we, we need innovation and cost breakthrough there as well. And so, so actually for us, we, we have reduced our CO2 emissions by 41% in 10 years time per container moved. And we have done that more or less alone with our own engineers optimizing our route planning and our network. We've worked together with some suppliers in terms of of, of technologies for the engine. So this is a journey we have been able to drive alone. But to reach the zero, we cannot do it alone. We are dependent on a whole ecosystem of actors and actually policymakers as well to support this journey. So so when you go to a shipbuilder and say, and I presume you've had these discussions, we want a fleet that in 11 years' time is net carbon neutral. Engine makers, shipbuilders, what do they say to you? Well, actually, the key dialogue we have, the first dialogue, is not the shipbuilders because the amendments that we will need to do to ships is something that we can figure out and we know that and they know that. So the first target for our dialogues are really especially two groups or three groups maybe. One is the energy companies and the utilities. They are the one that needs to supply new fuels, new energy, and invest in the new infrastructure on land. And that is difficult to do in 11 years. So that's the primary dialogue, energy companies, utilities. 
Then the finance sector, because we, we definitely need finance solutions um, to bridge some of the enormous risk there is up front in investing something where you haven't built the market yet. And then finally, the policymakers, because if we do not get legislation in place to support the infrastructure that we need on land on the one hand, but then on the other hand, also to actually change the incentive structure between fossil solutions and, and zero solutions in the market in terms of price, then it's going to be impossible to achieve it. Well, as you mentioned, you have reduced your relative CO2 emissions by 41% compared to 2008. And that nicely brings me on to our third guest, Mardi McBrien, Managing Director of the Climate Disclosure Standards Board. Welcome, Mardi. Now, your organisation was set up precisely to provide businesses with some of those answers, how to report progress. First of all, how does a company start compiling emissions data to be able to come out with a statement, we've reduced our relative CO2 emissions by 41% in the last decade? Companies have been reporting and collecting climate change information now for the best part of 20 years. The Greenhouse Gas Protocol has been around for 20 years and I would say is globally accepted as the way a company would go about collecting and establishing what its greenhouse gas emissions are. There are the usual suspects out there, all the big firms globally. Uh, I think audit is a really important part of uh, making sure the story you're telling, you're comfortable with the story you're telling, which I think is really important in this field where climate risk and opportunity is something new for companies to have to consider as part of their, their operations. Now, risk is not new. You know, risk is something that businesses are perfectly capable and set up to do and report and manage. They do this on a day-to-day basis or they wouldn't be still successful. Climate is a new part of that and it's something businesses need to get comfortable with. Although I've said greenhouse gases have been around for the last, been, been reported for 20 years, companies like CDP, we're CDP, which is an acronym I understand, but they are CDP, they were formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, They've been asking companies to report into portals online for over 15 years now, and still there are less than 7,000 large-listed and smaller enterprises through supply chain programs that actually do that. Where? In the world or in, in the, the UK? world, across the world. In, so, in the world? In the world. So they are obviously the largest emitters that are, that are targeted to, to undertake these programs. But in saying that, so there is a body of knowledge, skills and evidence out there to build off. And then at the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, where we work at the moment, uh, we, we have a framework which helps, which helps companies... Take this further. So put it in their annual report in line with financial information. Is it not there at the moment? Well, no, not always. You'd be be quite surprised. Even in the UK where you report carbon data in your annual report, it's just not happening. So in an annual report, which could have 20 pages explaining corporate executive pay... (laughs) How many pages would you get on climate disclosure? Well, again, a good question, Louise, because this is all proportional. It's proportional to the risk, to how risky it is to your business. It's proportional to how it fits with your strategy, your governance, your operations, and what sort of metrics and targets you've set. Well, I tell you what, we have somebody here that we probably should introduce, the chief executive of ICAEW, Michael Itzer, with me. Can you answer that question? So in an annual report where you get 20 pages of you know, how the executive team are paid, how many pages do you get on, uh, on climate change reporting? In most companies, you won't get anything. It will be a separate report from the annual report itself. So it will be something that the company has decided to do as part of its strategic reporting, but it will not be a regulatory requirement. I find that quite extraordinary. Well, I think the important thing is that this data they are collecting on climate and greenhouse gas emissions is collected with the same sort of boundaries, the same sort of materiality threshold as financial information. And that way it can be interlinked really easily into the normal business story and narrative. Michael? It's one of those areas that 
we at the ICAW have been asking for a number of years for the government to think about making mandatory. Because if we want to be serious about this, sometimes people talk about it as a crisis. We actually just think it's a business imperative. The businesses have got to change their business model. You have to be able to measure it, report it, and assure it, because otherwise people could be telling whatever story they want to tell and it could be pure fabrication. You're listening to More Than A Number, brought to you by ICAEW. Mardi, are there other organisations such as yours around the world? We're global, so we're listed across regulation across the world for mandatory climate reporting. We're listed for stock exchange listing requirements. You know, there's a breadth of, of places that our work is now considered best practice for reporting climate information. And more recently, in 2017, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which was sent up by the G20's Financial Stability Board, uh, gave us the highest possible compliment by taking our uh, principles and requirements directly from our framework and making them global best practice, which but, we but, now but, have only 800 companies committing to. Only 800 globally? 800. This is all discretionary. Nobody has to look at your lovely framework. Do you know what? I think that's the real thing. And I think we we came out a long time ago. You know, the Institute supported us in excess of before 2010 to produce this framework. We were well ahead ahead of our time. But our time came and we've been pushing for mandatory reporting for a long, long time. And we will not get the pace and the scale needed to prevent dangerous climate change if this is not mandatory in the next two to three years. Is it mandatory anywhere in the world? not mandatory across climate. There is mandatory GHG report, greenhouse gas emissions reporting in in certain jurisdictions, but not climate-related risk and opportunity reporting. Now, I suspect on the back of the green finance strategy that was released here over the summer, we will see mandatory greenhouse gas reporting. I think companies and investors are being put on notice. They will both have to do that mandatory by 2020 here. And I suspect in Europe, we will see that no later than 2022 on the revision of the non-financial reporting directive. America? Less so. However, everyone has the requirement, every listed company has the requirement to report risk as a matter of fiduciary duty. It is your job as a shareholder to report risk. So we're seeing more and more cases now come out. Company directors are being put on on notice that this is a risk and they are liable if this is not reported. And we've seen cases most latterly in the Commonwealth back in Australia put on notice by its shareholders and it immediately reported to the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures as a as like a response to that. So we are seeing it. there's a, a more and more legal opinion being published that climate is a material risk and you're expected to report on it. So, you know, I think this is writing on the wall. If you're not doing it now, I'd get started because the cost of your business of getting started later on is going to be more than if you actually put pen to paper now and, and crack on. And I think that's a really good point because we've been talking about this for long enough. I mean, if you go back to 1992 and Rio, we were identifying a lot of these risks, not last decade, but the decade before. And we're very good at having conferences. We're very good at telling people what somebody else should do. But every year that elapses, the solution becomes that much more difficult to implement. And we are getting increasingly to the point where for a business to change to the degree it needs to be adapting is going to be too difficult to implement in the period that will be left. Well, let's just move on to that then. What I want to ask all the panel is, how do you think companies in the UK are doing with respect to climate change? So, Michael, you kick off. I think at best, you could say it's a mixed picture. At the larger end, I think some companies get it and are starting to change their business models. But unfortunately, we have 5 million businesses in the UK. And for most of them, it's something that somebody else does 
or they're not interested in. And I think the report card would have to read that we need to do a lot better and we need to do a lot better quickly. For C350, 350 largest quoted companies here in the UK, how many apply your standards, your framework have been in touch with you? So we have over 150 companies here in the UK that use our framework and have been in touch with us. Are that, they all quoted or are they no, some of them private? No, that's all listed. All listed. Large listed. We largely work with large listed. The framework can be used for public, uh, private companies. All of that was largely developed for large listed. But if you think we've got 150 that are talking to us, maybe doing this right. We looked at the FTSE 350 a few years ago. The percentages were really low. I mean, it's minimum requirement by law is, is being done. And that's sort of not the pace that we need. But I think it's also important to stress that, you know, for SMEs and, and smaller businesses that aren't in those the top tier, you, you know, you don't 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 feel overwhelmed by it. Um, CDSB has an online e-learning course that's set up for smaller, you know, for everyone to learn about uh, climate-related impacts and what they are and how they fit in um, and how you do things about them. But start and, you know, I know the Institute are very good at this, but think about it from your day-to-day perspective. Think about it from you and how it affects you and build that out when your kids start missing school and you've got no productivity, like we saw in France in the summer. You know, think about it. Think about it for waves. you first as a small business. So 150 out of FTSE 350. It's not great, is it, Michael? It's not. And I think if you are a business that is interested in this area and think that you need to do something, it can be overwhelming because you're immediately faced with three-letter and four-letter acronyms and you start to talk to someone who is very knowledgeable and before the conversation has gone very far, they tell you, ah, oh, you don't understand the dependencies. And no, you, I don't, Michael. And, and you look, and <laughs> Please you, explain. And you look at them and you say... What's a dependency? Ah, well, that's a consequence of something else. And business doesn't think like that. So we have to to make this uh, a debate, a movement that is easily understood by people who are not going to necessarily be as steeped in it as others. Small and medium-sized businesses. You said 5 million businesses in the UK. Lots of them are SMEs. Where, you know, you said... Mardi, you've got some educational tools online, but many of them are way too busy managing their business to even think about this. If even FTSE 350 aren't bothering, why, why should a small manufacturer in the north of England even look at this? We would argue that the reason why they should be looking at it is because it makes good business sense. All businesses exist to make a profit, and most businesses want to exist for a period of time. So when you think about the future, future prospects, future earnings it does come back to cash flow and value. And one of the things that I talk particularly to the big businesses about with whom it's easier to have these conversations is actually this is a value discussion. Because if you can project forward and you can see the impact of extreme weather changes, if you can see that your industry sector like tourism is going to be dramatically impacted, it's a value discussion. It isn't something that you just leave for someone else to talk about. Amelia then, is UK business ready? UK business is far from ready. John, do you think Maersk is ahead of others in this respect? And and do you feel maybe you should have looked at it, Maersk should have looked at this 10 or 20 years ago? Well, we started to look at this in a systematic way, um, including reporting on it 12 to 13 years ago. So we have started before that, maybe you can argue, but, but definitely when we started, we were in our own industry, really early movers. We still are, actually, because the industry is a little bit conservative. If we compare to some of the big consumer brands, I think we're we at par with them. As you just discussed, if you look at then and the next level of 100, 200 companies, uh, there is still a lot of companies that need to move. 
On the reporting side, I just wanted to add that it has for a number of years been mandatory to report on these issues in Denmark, but out of a framework where you say you, you report or you explain, and that means that if you don't report on a sustainability issue, you have to explain why you don't report on it. And by that, you actually need to report on it because you need to, you need to talk about what it is and isn't for you. But I think, as was just touched upon, that the way into companies is not reporting. It cannot and should not be driven by reporting. Reporting is a result. It's a result of the company understanding that an issue as cli like climate change for most businesses is a core risk area in many different ways. And therefore, it, it needs to be part of the enterprise risk management and it needs to be part of the business strategy and the way that it uses the enterprise risk management analysis and insights to actually drive the right business strategy. And think of it from our point of view. There are many details to this, but from a holistic point of view, there are two enormous uncertainties for us as a company in shipping with asset cycles of 25 years and hundreds of billions of dollars invested. One, will the world and the economy actually follow a 1.5 degree pathway or a 3.5 degree pathway. It's two completely different scenarios in terms of legislation and economic incentives in the market. It's also two very different scenarios in terms of the actual impact of physical climate change. Which one is it? We don't know. It's a fat tail issue. But there is a lot of money to be made in managing that risk well. And the way that we have chosen to manage it and to limit the uncertainty is actually to be a proactive driver and shaper of that framework. Then the next big one in shipping, when we talk about the fuel and the technology, is will carbon capture technologies pick up or will they not? In a one point, if, if the world follows a 1.5 degrees world, if they pick up, we will be able to follow a 1.5 degrees well and continue to burn fossil fuels because we collect the CO2. That's one scenario that's completely different from a scenario where, where carbon capture solutions will not pick up, will not be viable, because then we have to not burn fossil fuels and then the energy system needs to transform completely. And I'm just, I'm throwing this out just to, to paint the picture of how this is a risk management issue and how the business strategy decisions that we take uh, and the success of these are highly dependent on our ability to foresee and to manage those risks. Well, let's move on to stakeholders, corporate stakeholders. And you mentioned this early, Mardi, about shareholders. And we've got a great quote here from Terry Leahy, a former boss of Tesco, is quoted as saying, investors want to know how exposed a business is to climate change. Michael, is this something ICAEW finance directors, members are facing? You know, continuous questions from institutional shareholders that own shares in the companies. What, what are the impacts? We need far more information. If you'd asked that question about three years ago of most CFOs, they would say they'd never been asked a question by investors about climate change. I think in the last three years that started to change and there are some of the large global tracker funds who've become increasingly interested in this area. So BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard have all been very much at the fore in terms of beginning to show interest in this area. In fact, just, just to give you an anecdote, in January I was at Davos and talking to one of the big United States investors, and I wanted to talk to them about auditing 
they wanted to talk to me about climate change reporting. So it is now on people's agenda in a way that it wasn't, but it's still to a limited way. We'll continue our discussion on this important subject of asking if business is prepared for climate change in part two. See you then. <laughs>